Okay, I'm hoping that this is working. If you're hearing me on the internet, awesome. Okay, good morning. Good morning. Um, welcome to the Equip Hour. Um, today we are continuing our lament series with a study in Psalm 22. Um, we're all kind of packed in here together this morning, but closeness, great fellowship is what we're going for. So I'm going to open us up with prayer, and then um, we'll start talking about Psalm 22. So I want to read, actually, though, from, uh, from Isaiah chapter 40 to begin us, and then I'll pray. Haven't you heard? Don't you understand? Are you deaf to the words of God, the words he gave before the world began? Are you so ignorant? God sits above the circle of the earth. The people below seem like grasshoppers to him. He spreads out the heavens like a curtain and makes his tent from them. He judges the great people of the world and brings them all to nothing. They hardly get started, barely taking root, when he blows on them and they wither. The wind carries them off like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? asks the Holy One. Look up into the heavens. Who created the stars? He brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each by its name. Because of his great, great power and incomparable strength, not a single one is missing. O oh, Jacob, how can you say the Lord does not see your troubles? O oh, Israel, how can you say God ignores your rights? Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. Even youths will become weak and tired. Young men will fall in exhaustion. But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar on high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Let's pray. Father, um, the voice of lament in us says, um, where are you? It says we have, it, it reminds us that um, in our exhaustion, in our weariness, in our anxiety, that, Lord, um, you sit above the circle of the earth. You are so high above us, and yet you are very, very, very close, giving us strength when we are weary. Lord, we pray that as we study this today, as we study lament psalms further, that we would come to a better understanding of you and what you're doing in your world. Father, we pray that we would come to speak lament out of our hearts with a rest, not out of not out of a faithlessness, but a faithfulness to you. So we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. So I want to walk through briefly our true and false questions here uh, before we dive in. And actually the way today is going to go is um, you are going to be doing the studying of Psalm 22. Um, not me. <laughs> we'll do it together. Um, we're going to use the principles that we learned in last week's talk on intro to studying the Lament Psalms. And if you weren't here last week, that's okay, because I'm going to run through them briefly again. And I think almost everybody has somebody at, the ta- at their table that can help and uh, help us figure that out. But um, first, let's go to these true or false questions. The first one is, when the author wrote this psalm, he was thinking about Jesus. True or false? True or false? True? The answer is false. We will talk about that. When we read the First Testament, not the Old Testament, the First Testament, our first course of action is to find out how the passage relates to Jesus. True or false? False. Excellent. True or false? Jesus quotes the Psalms more than any book of the Bible. True. True. 
we, uh, true or false, we read the First Testament in light of the Second Testament, not the other way around. True. Excellent. Uh, so let's review. Um, what is the first sentence? Finding the, the vision of God in the passage is the key to every psalm. Tracking the pattern of the psalm reveals meaning. Laments are emotional. Understanding these, reveals, these emotions reveals meaning. The identity of the enemy is unimportant. Laments answer the problem of evil very differently than we do. All right, so let, let's uh, actually, we're going to do a lot of reading in the text today. Um, I want to read Psalm 22 together before we start studying it, so we're all on the same page. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation, which will account for um, any differences you see in the book in front of you. Um, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night you hear my voice, but I find no relief. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our ancestors trusted in you, and you rescued them. They cried out to you and were saved. They trusted in you and were never disgraced. But I am a worm and not a man. I am scorned and despised by all. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads, saying, Is this the one who relies on the Lord? Then let the Lord save him. If the Lord loves him so much, let the Lord rescue him. Yet you brought me safely from my mother's womb and led me to trust you at my mother's breast. I was thrust into your arms at my birth. You have been my God from the moment I was born. Do not stay so far from me, for trouble is near and no one else can help me. My enemies surround me like a herd of bulls, fierce bulls of Bashan have penned me in. Like lions, they open their jaws against me, roaring and tearing into their prey. My life is poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, melting within me. My strength is dried up like sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You have laid me in the dust and left me for dead. Verse 16. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. My enemies stare at me and gloat. They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. O oh, oh Lord, do not stay far away. You are my strength. Come quickly to my aid. Save me from the sword. Tear my precious life from these dogs. Snatch me from the lion's jaws and from the horns of these wild oxen. I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. Praise the Lord, all you who fear him. Honor him, all you descendants of Jacob. Show him reverence, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not ignored or belittled the suffering of the needy. He has not turned his back on them, but has listened to their cries for help. I will praise you in the great assembly. I will fulfill my vows in the presence of those who worship you. The poor will eat and be satisfied. All who seek the Lord will praise him. Their hearts will rejoice with everlasting joy. The whole earth will acknowledge the Lord and return to him. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. For royal power belongs to the Lord. He rules all the nations. Let the rich of the earth feast and worship. Bow before him all who are mortal. All whose lives will end as dust. Our children will also serve him. Future generations will hear about the wonders of the Lord. His righteous acts will be told that they not yet born. They will hear about everything he has done. This is God's word. Amen. Um, that's a long one. Um, I read that this week, and last week we kind of talked about some principles of how to study Psalms, and 
I almost felt bad giving you the principles I gave you because I felt like on some level Psalm 22 begins to escape them at every turn. This pattern is really, really unpredictable. I mean, he is all over the place. Um, and uh, the emotions, there's about 77 of them all the way through there. At one moment, he's really sad, he's talking about isolation and loneliness, and the next moment, he's singing praises, and the next moment, wild oxen are eating me. Uh, and so, before we get there, I want to look at the second page of this handout and talk about the value of the First Testament. And um, you'll notice there that I have a footnote on first, and um, on that, this is probably a little pet, pet axe to grind, I guess I could say. Um, my footnote says, the Old Testament isn't old. It just came first. In a culture that equates old with bad and new with great, our hearts and attitudes toward the First Testament are subtly shifted negatively. Um, and so um, I really insist on often calling it the First Testament because it shapes my mind a little differently. Um, we just happen to live in a culture that values new things more than old things. So I want to talk a little bit about the value of the First Testament, which we did a little bit last week. But again, I love the First Testament, so I'm going to grind the facts as much as I can. So um, I want to read 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The word competent there can actually be translated complete, which then I learned the Villa's Church, presenting all people complete in Christ. And what's interesting to me, and this is your first blank, Paul is thinking about the First Testament when he wrote this. And I, and I think I felt hit this yesterday, but when we talk about the canon of the Bible, the 66 books that we have, um, when um, Acts chapter 2 says they gathered daily to, for the study of the Word, for the reading of the Word, they were reading the Old Testament. Um, and actually, the pressure on the early church was, how do we read the Old Testament and now we're worshiping Jesus and how do we connect these two things and that pressure was filled or relieved by when Paul started writing letters or when Peter started writing letters. And so they didn't really have the New Testament canon uh, our 27 books, I will say 29, but it's 39 in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. They didn't really have those until 100, 150 A.D. So they were really using the Old Testament for about the first century of Christian worship. Um, and that's when, in about the middle of the first century, was when letters started being circulated around the church. And then somehow, Paul's letters, Peter's letters, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, these books started, and letters started kind of rising to the top, and they started saying there's something different about this than, say, other letters. There's something different about this than what this guy's saying is what. There's something different about what Paul is saying, and these ended up being scriptures. But early Christians, and this is your second blank, your early Christians only have the First Testament. And I think that's really interesting because this is going to set us up for what we're talking about in a couple points, but it's really the First Testament, the Old Testament, that shapes the imagination of the New Testament writer. Um, and so, so often, when you're reading the, Old, the New Testament, the, the Second Testament, they're thinking about and remembering the First Testament they write. So, for example, um, if you were to read the account of Jonah in the boat and the account of Jesus in the boat when he's asleep, and he and Jonah are both asleep, everybody else in the boat is freaking out, Jesus is, Jesus is on his way to the mission to the Gentiles, Jonah is on his way to the people of Nineveh, and there's constant flashes of the Old Testament in the New Testament writer's mind. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. John's probably thinking about prophets saying this is the word of the Lord. I mean, there's or Genesis one in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens of the earth. So, um, this is going to bring us to our next point, which is reading and studying the First Testament. The authors of Scripture, and I did put this up here. 
So the authors of scripture, when they wrote books, this is the chart I'm looking at, they went back to write. So if you look at Joshua 1.1, uh, and then somebody else would pull up Judges 1.1, Joshua 1.1, I'll read Joshua and then we can read Judges. Joshua 1.1, after the death of Moses, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant. He said, Moses, my servant, is dead. I mean, the, the writer of Joshua is, chapter 34, Deuteronomy, the death of Moses. Moses died. Next, next page, after the death of Moses. I mean, in his mind, He's building on the books of Moses, the writer of Joshua. And then if somebody could read Judges chapter chapter 1, verse 1, please. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who will be the first to go up and fight us against the enemy? After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord. When the writers of the Old Testament were writing, when the writers of the First Testament were writing, they, this is your first back blank, they looked back to write scripture. They were always building on a foundation previously laid for them, uh, and so writing in light of that. Um, so that um, Nehemiah, when he's writing down what he's got, and this is actually the text I preached in March, when they talked about Ezra and Nehemiah reading the book of the law, he was probably reading Deuteronomy. Um, they're always looking back to previous books that they had and using those. Um, when we look at, when, and then when we read the first testament, we need to first look back to what comes before it before looking forward. So you want to add, because there's a, an element of progressiveness, a building block, a, um, a foundation is being laid brick by brick by brick. Here's, here's Genesis, here's Exodus, here's Leviticus, here's Numbers, here's Deuteronomy. You're always looking back. Now, this is important for how we um, read the New Testament. Let's start from the next page. It's a, this line says, the first testament is Christ's gold, G-O-A-L-E-B, but not Christ-centered. The, old, the first testament is Christ's gold, but not Christ-centered. And this is what I mean by this. I'm going to throw this on the board, so I'm sorry for those of you who can't see this on the internet. But when we talk about Christ-centeredness, that means that this is the Old Testament. Christ is at the center of it, right? So that every time we're reading it, we're, oh, where's Christ? There he is, back, back to Christ, back to Christ, back to Christ. Okay, and I think it's far better to say that the Old Testament is, look, is Christ's goal. It reaches its completion, its fulfillment, its... Um, it's embodiment forwardly. Um, Michael and I were talking about this week, and, and it's almost like the Old Testament is like a cowboy, and they're sending lassos forward, and they don't know what it hits, and then Jesus is born, and all of a sudden all of these things just catch around Jesus' neck. And then there's times actually in the Old Testament, where, in the New Testament, where Jesus is taking the lasso, and he's flinging it back to the Old Testament and saying, and yanking that to himself and saying, oh, that was about me. Um, and so this chart that I've kind of attempted to devise here, um, is to show you that the law prophets are writing the three major segments of the first testament are leaning forward towards the second testament. They're reaching towards something up ahead. Um, what are they reaching for? I would say broadly they're reaching for redemption, restoration, a Messiah, a Savior, a um, salvation for, their, for the people of Israel. And it just so happens that Jesus embodies those things. They're leaning forward. And then when we get to the New Testament, they actually are able to look back and go, oh, wait a minute. The 
whole Old Testament was leaning forward towards Jesus. So if you look at um, the chart you have on your page, I have a quote from Luke um, 24:27, and this is when Luke records Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus with these two men. And they're going on and on, and we we're following this guy, and he died, and now we don't know what to do, and they don't really know that it's Jesus, and he's talking to them, and he's talking to them, and then, it, and then all of a sudden it says that their eyes were opened, and they realized it was Jesus, and it says, then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining to them from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so what you see so often in the gospel accounts is these aha moments, like, and then they believed he was who he said he was. And then they knew this is what Jesus was fulfilling, da 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 his prophecy. And then they understood that Jesus was doing this. And then they understood. So what it wasn't, when we read the Old Testament, I think our tendency is to say, um, you know, it was really common, especially in the early church, to basically read the entire Old Testament for every little image of Jesus. And so they said the scarlet cord hanging out of Rahab's window in the book of Judges, oh, that's Jesus' blood. You know, and I think... Actually, it's just a scarlet cord that was bright red, but they could see it when they were marching around the city. You know, um, was what we what we can see though is um, various places where the office of the prophet say was leaning forward to Jesus, or King David is unashamedly basically like totally looking forward to Jesus or to the Messiah or to the saving of Israel. And this is and this is why I want to make this point. And this is all going to come together in this. When the author wrote his psalm, he was thinking about Jesus. That is why the answer to that question is false, not true. Because the Old Testament writers were writing about their situation, their minds, what was going on in them. They're telling a story of Israel, of their faith. And as you read the Old Testament, the more and more you read it, the more and more you start to sense a, what we call, messianic expectation, an expectation of somebody's coming, somebody's coming. And you really start to hit it, say, when you read your Bible, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, like the last half of the New Testament, Last half of the New Testament, last half of the Old Testament, when you really start to feel we are expecting something, we are expecting something, we are expecting something. In Genesis, Exodus, not really. I mean, God, Yahweh was doing that for them. So as we move forward, there starts to get this, like, this sense of something that more is coming, something more is coming, just more and more and more and more, and this leaning and this leaning and this leaning, and then we get to the New Testament, and Matthew picks up with this genealogy, and Matthew is essentially saying, look, I'm picking up exactly where the Old Testament left off. So, the reason that we want to say this is that when we read the Old Testament, we need to appreciate itself within this box first. I'm blocking it. That's not helpful. Uh, you want to appreciate whatever they're saying within before the line. Because they were saying something that was meaningful to them before the line. Then the line comes, Jesus comes, and it has this whole extra light sense of what's going on. So to read the Old Testament and see Jesus in every story and just jump immediately to Jesus is like only eating dessert which is awesome for a long time, and then you start getting real sick, right? Because you're totally skipping the main course. The main course of the Old Testament is, um, what is God doing in Genesis? What is, who is the picture of God in Genesis? Who is the picture of God in Exodus? Who is the picture of God in Kings? Who is the picture of God in Chronicles? Who is the picture of God in Hosea? What does this mean to Israel? What does this mean in their mind? And then the New Testament comes along, and it's like, ah, I get to eat strawberry shortcake now, because it's all about Jesus, and this is what we wanted. Um, is that making sense? I'm trying to discern from faces. And this is all going to help us because if we read Psalm 22 and we immediately jump to Jesus, we're missing about 80% of what, we, what David intended when he wrote this psalm. Um, we're going to miss a huge, enormous chunk of God's intention in this, in this text. It's like the same thing when, uh, if we were to take Genesis 3 and it says... Um, 
And it's talking about um, all this happens when he tells the snake that you will bruise his heel and, and he will crush your head, right? Like, that has meaning in this original context, and then it's fulfilled by Jesus. That's probably the first time that there's ever any kind of sense that something bigger is going to happen here. But did Moses necessarily have Jesus in his mind? I don't think so. I think he was thinking of just, there's going to be a deliverer. There's going to be someone that will help us. There's going to be someone that rectifies the situation. And then Jesus of Nazareth comes along and they go, aha. This is why, um, I'm thinking about going on a tangent, but I'm not going to. Okay. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, this really is interesting, um, and I appreciate this leaning forward, and even this group passage 24, with respect to uh, God's opening and giving understanding, mm-hmm. I, I, I really like the example, even like in chapter 12 of which, at that point, he's actually telling the crowd, calling the hypocrites, because mm-hmm. they're not able to discern literally mm-hmm. the fact that he is there, right. this unfolding of things right to me. Right. And there is the fact that you can tell us in range of parts. Right, right. You guys look at the sky, but you can't. You make that determination. Yeah. And that's the most, here I am in the sky. Right. And uh, at that point, that's where it was right before the, again, God is opening the, the eyes. Right, right. Uh, which is really interesting how we even get to that close. Right. So this meaning color, I think, is really a great uh, picture. Uh, even how it gets to be more of a lean, like, oh, like almost like they can't reach it. You know, I think what you're bringing up too is, and I would say, like, the expectations of the First Testament are kind of general, kind of general, which is why that when Jesus got there, not everybody really figured it out right away, right? Like, there needed to be some further revelation. So, like, say in Matthew 18, where he looks at them and says, well, who do people say that I am? Well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're this person, some say you're this person. And then, well, who do you say that I am? Peter goes, well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and Jesus looks at him and says, flesh and bone did not reveal this to you, but this is my Father in heaven. So there is some kind of, um, it's ironic, there's, a, there's something going on about eternal security and all the kind of doctrines of grace and how salvation works over the next door. And, Sorry, you're here, don't leave. Um, and what's the deal online? And, I think there's an element where if the Old Testament had been Christ-centered and they were, t- and the picture of Jesus is totally clear, then there wouldn't have been a problem in the Gospels of why are people figuring this out, right? But it was only because of the leaning so that there needed to be Jesus saying, hello, look at me, hello, and people just still not getting it. And this was, that was just part of the whole plan, right? There was rejection. So it's the leaning, and I, and I think... I had to play, honestly, I was super proud of myself when I started thinking this graph. I was like, wait a minute. You just need to be trapezoid, not square. I got super, and then I showed my roommate, and he's also a biblical languages major at Wheaton Grad School, so he's like, oh my gosh, that's what he was, I, I earned their approval, it's not very nice. So, let's move on to Psalm 22 and the Messiah here. Right, yeah, right, yeah. Right. So the main thing I want you to get is there is this, this aha moment when the New Testament comes along where they suddenly go, all these things they testified about Jesus. And that we just didn't, sometimes we just didn't understand it. Um, so, the first true or false question that I'm bringing again is true or false. When the author wrote this song, he was thinking about Jesus. False. When the author wrote this song, he was thinking about his own circumstances, his friends that were like oxen and dogs and cows of Bashan, and um, he was thinking about 
how my bones are doing away. His body is erect, isn't it? Like, all my, all of my joints are out, like, basically all my joints are out of whack. You know, it's like, okay, you can just lay in your bed and we'll just find somebody to help you with that. I think, so, the, the next question, as a second testament believer, I can look back on Psalm 22 and see Jesus true. Because we can look back and we can have an aha moment only if we give 80% of our time to figuring out what does the text say about his situation, about his moment, about what he was had going on, and then we can go back and go, oh, by the way, Jesus did this. And I have this chart here, and I would probably add this too. Um, you know, was it that Jesus fulfilled Psalm 22? Or was it that Jesus is so, Jesus' mind is so shaped by the Psalms? that he can only be on the cross and cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this goes back to what we talked about last week, allowing your prayer life to be shaped by the Psalms. Was it that Jesus... I'm not sure that Jesus was coherent enough on the cross to think that first, could I possibly cry out at this moment that will somehow tell people people I'm the Messiah? I wonder, at least in Jesus' humanity, he had to be like, I'm really in a lot of pain right now, and this is probably just what erupts out of them. Our, is, are our imaginations, our hearts, our minds, our prayer lives, are they shaped by the Psalms in the way that Jesus is this? And then I would again say, as, as we've talked about how the writers of the um, Second Testament just have in their minds the whole time, the First Testament, um, I would say on some level they're thinking of Psalm 22. John, Mark, Matthew, Luke, they're all thinking of Psalm 22 as they're retelling this account. And oddly enough, I would say at the end of the day, yes, there was some level of prophecy happening in in Psalm 22 because so many things happen all over again in real life with Jesus and he's hanging on the cross. And I built this chart for you. So, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22.1, Matthew 27.46. About 3 o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Uh, 22, 7, and 8. Everyone who sees me mocks me. Is this the one who relies on the Lord? Then let the Lord save him. What do they yell out to Jesus when he's hanging on the cross? If you're the Son of God, get down off there. Um, you know, my life is poured out like water. Blood and water flow out of the side. I was Jesus' side and they pierced it. They have pierced my hands and feet. 22:16. They nailed him to the cross. John 19:18. They divide my garments among themselves. They throw dice for my clothing. This is John uh, Matthew 27:35. They nailed him to the cross. The soldiers get gambled of his clothes by throwing dice. There's this level of um, of prophecy, of foretelling, of repetition of events. Um, we could talk about um, with Psalm 22 a shadow of the things to come. I think prophecy is a strong word for Psalm 22. Because it doesn't seem like it's saying, oh, and this will happen. I think it's kind of a foreshadow. It's kind of like a, uh, a foreshadowing. It's kind of like when you're reading a novel and they start to like kind of drop little hints along the way. This is one of those hints of, um, it's just one of those hints that God's doing and it happens again. And if you read the Bible, um, same things happen over and over and over again. Now, liberal critics will tell you that's because the Bible is a man-made product, that people were just copying other people, and so the text of the Bible is all false. And so um, the fact that Abraham goes into Egypt twice, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have very similar life patterns, I mean, this is all just repetition, this is all falsehood, this is just copycatism. Or is it God doing the same things over and over and over again to get points to our heads? You know, Jesus is the second Jonah. Jesus is the second David. Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus is the second Moses. Jesus is the second. You know, is it that Jesus is actually reliving the lives of so many people in the Old Testament that's doing it right? 
you know, Moses was so faithfully, so faithfully, and then he strikes the rock instead of speaking to it, and then he's not allowed to enter the promised land. David's got so much going on for himself, and then he sleeps with Bathsheba. Right? Moses, um, so Adam has so much very great money, ate the fruit. You know, and so is it that Christ comes in the Second Testament and is actually reliving the lives of all these major Old Testament figures and saying, oh, no, I'm doing it right. I think it's that. So the Old Testament on some level does act like, again, that leaning, it's foreshadowing. Um, so this last question, to fail to see Jesus in Psalm 22 is to truly miss the beauty of this passage. Absolutely. And I hope you don't think that I'm totally reneging on everything I just said. I'm really not. But what I'm trying to say is that, of course, please, as a Second, Test- as a second Testament believer, go back to Psalm 22 and go, Oh my goodness, this is so much the life of Christ encapsulated in this text. But um, let's also do that only after we had our fruit and vegetables and our proteins and our little bit of starch for dinner and then go on and have our dessert and go, oh, and by the way, I can really, really enjoy this because it suddenly reminds me of Jesus' said. Yes, excellent. Yeah, I think the poetic nature of it and the genre. Um, has so much to do with because when actually when the first person yeah goes from you're losing something absolutely I would say um, the sadness of us not of translating Greek to English which is the New Testament is a very easy jump Hebrew to English is not an easy job because as you read the Hebrew, I, I wish I was taking Hebrew when I was in school because there's so many little rhyming things, but we're missing out on all this rhyming and all these nods and all these things that are happening in the Hebrew text, you're right. And the poetry is really where we get a lot of the imagery, too, yeah. that I think ends up showing up in the gospel accounts again. It's just so, that's what Absolutely. I think, again, going back to these liberal critics that look at the, look at the Bible and, and try to, they call it source criticism. So where did, where did John get his source material for this? Or where did Moses get his source material for Genesis? And all of stuff, I mean, it's a faulty question. I'll tell you what the source material was. His name is God. Okay. And he divinely inspired all of these scriptures so that we would read them and suddenly come to understanding of who he is, what he's doing in the world, so that we would read Psalm 22 a few centuries later, read, find this Jesus man hanging on a cross and go, I feel like I've heard this somewhere before, you know, and then, and then go back and opening the scrolls and then, oh, wait a second. So this next page is where we're going to spend probably the next 20 minutes doing this together. I'd like us to um, study the psalm together, and before we do that, I'm going to give you a little bit of help with um, with some tools on to do this because some of you weren't here last week, so I'll run through these quickly. Uh, I'm going to move back so you all can get this table. Psalms in general, you want to ask, what is the vision of God in the passage? What is God like? Um, just the back page here is for you to like write your answers. So if you want to jot notes about what I'm calling you, you can write it on the margin there, but arms in there, but um, or however you want to do it. Um, Psalms in general ask, what is the what are the deeds of God in the passage? What does God do? I think that would probably say for you in Psalm 22. That means what is what is the psalmist hope God will do? Put it that way, right? Laments in particular, uh, lament psalms take on certain patterns, and tracking that pattern reveals meaning. And so we talked last week about some psalms have a motion of, like, a downward direction and up out, like, so down into the pit. 
pop out of it, sometimes like in U shape or a V shape. And then sometimes, though, this isn't helpful because sometimes it actually kind of does like maybe this. You know, and that, so it's kind of not exactly the best. Um, one of the, um, and this, I have this too, um, there's emotions in the passage that you want to track to, and I actually have given you on the last page of the handout a chart like we did last week, and we're going to do it together, um, so it's blank, so you guys can, the idea is that you're tracking um, verse 1, where's the emotion, if it gets happy, like by the smiley face, you go upward on your graph, if it goes down, you know, you want to move it up and down, and then some of you are going to be super impressed, I don't even know what this is, we're all going to do it together on this overhead. <laughs> um, yeah, it still does, right? I, uh, I had a, I've learned everything I learned for the Greek New Testament, I learned off of one of these because my professor is in his 70s, and I think he just never really cared to transfer any of his stuff to PowerPoint. And so he will come into class with big, thick binders and smack this giant, like, stack of these things. He'll just flip them on there, jot them down, flip them off, draw them out, and then when he wants to raise something, this is the growth part. He'll just lick his thumb and do this. And sometimes his pen gets right, he sticks it in his mouth, keeps going, and so you see his like, teeth are always kind of greenish or yellow or reddish or whatever. So that's a shout-out to Dr. Sauer. Bless his heart. Okay. Um, from Miss Sidley. It's so awesome. Yes, sir. Really? How does he teach you Greek? Is that in Braille? Oh, my goodness. The... Oh, absolutely. The people that I wanted to be that person so badly and had to just own that I can't have the memory for that. So I love it. But So you can do this chart together. We'll do it on the overhead. Um, identify the enemy of the passage. Remember that the identity of the enemy is unimportant because it's really just about God being the victor in all circumstances. So um, what we talked about last week is we have, in, I'm going to call it interpretive freedom uh, with kind of seeing our situation into the identity of the enemy. So feel free to, I'm battling with this health issue, this person in my life, this thing. That can count as the enemy as long as you're good. So, um, and then um, how does Psalm 22 handle the problem of evil? Uh, last week we talked about, ooh, look, that's fun. Um, last week we talked about how um, Psalm 22 often answers the problem of evil with questions, instead of asking the question of the problem of evil, like, how can a good and loving God allow even to exist, they just say things like, why? How long? Why have you abandoned me? Why do you do these things? How do they answer it? God is good. I can trust in him at all times, things like that. So um, go ahead, and we're going to take about the next, let's call it 15 minutes, maybe. And if you're done, you get done. But to walk through this poem together, talk about what's that like, it's more important for me that you all understand how to do this on your own than for me to do it for you. So... Um, go ahead and take a few moments to um, study that together, and we'll share our answers to the class. Oh, that made a difference. Did you unplug that thing, Linda? Thank you so much.
Um, my life is poured out like water. All my bones, all my bones are out of joints. My heart is like wax. Um, what do you? Before we get to the general shape, what, what emotions are present? Do you think? Despair, anguish. Anguish is a great word. Anguish, sorrow. Is there is there a movement of hope though? I think of all the laments, I got really excited when I got Psalms 22 when they were built out. Because I think Psalms 22 has the most dramatic reversal of any song, any lament song. I mean, it is like way, way down, and then way, way up. And um, honestly, actually, pretty even they split down the middle as far as content goes. So there's hope. Um, what about what are the, the problem of evil question? What are the questions that he asks? A philosopher asks, what does a good and perfect God do about evil? We ask what questions? Why? Forget my left handed on the board. I've never been able to write on board so Why? I think that's really there's a there's there's an unuttered how long. Yeah, like um yeah, when, when are you going to get here? You know? Um, so how does Psalm 22 answer it? It also kind of says, you know, you've done all this before. Yes. You're going to do it. When are you going to do it again? Well, you've done all this before. When are you going to do it again? And I think that, again, is what makes Psalm 22 so frustrating for the psalmist. Because, and that's, this, is, this is the blessing. This is what we say all the time. Well, we can know who God is because we know what he's done in the past, so we know what he's going to do in the future. At one moment, that's like a, I think that's a two-edged sword, though. Because sometimes it is nice to know, well, this is what God did in the past and what he's going to do in the future. Sometimes it's really upsetting to know what God did in the past when he's not doing it right now. You know? Um, and I think that's also probably a large driving in the engine of lament psalms is this, like, um, hello, hi, you remember, like, X this, remember Red Sea things, like, Pillars the cloud, pillars of fire. I, I'll, and that's sometimes our part. All I just really need is, like, for me to feel better, you know? Or all I just really need is for this situation between me and a friend to be resolved. So um, so, they, so part of it is you've done this in the past, like past action. Uh, what is the answer? Like, what is, what is maybe, how does, where, where does he rest his hope then? And this kind of actually ends up kind of bringing us back to the vision of God question on some level, but Read me verse 24 in their translation. Anybody that's, I'm, and tell me what it is, I'm just curious. Ooh. Let me, let, just a brief note on translation. Of all translations of the Psalms, I absolutely love the ESV. 
they really do a great job of capturing the language of the Psalms. The reason I've been reading NLC is partly because it makes it easier. Like, and this is what I use to teach youth group because the flow of arguments is way clearer in the NLC than sometimes it is in the ESV. I read Isaiah 1 and 2 this week on a limb, and I got really excited because I actually followed the whole arc of what he was saying for the first time. So sometimes that's why I really enjoy the NLC, but sometimes the ESV or a NASB, these more um, word-for-word translations um, can just bring out that word, aboard. You have not abhorred my, um, abhorred my suffering. That's a good word. Um, so, I love verse 26. The poor will eat and be satisfied. All who seek the Lord will praise him. The hearts will rejoice. The lost enjoy. So, this is a hope of future action. So, let's go back into our chart here. What, if you could give me a general motion, what is it? Is it a V? Is it an arrow downward? It's one of those two, I think. You think it's a V? Does everybody think it's a V or there's disagreement on that? Anybody? Is this the general movement of the song? The whole thing? The first two verses are down. So he goes up a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. Am I giving it to you? Like, do you think that was there? I think what can happen is you can have a V or a downward, you know, but it can zigzag on that a little bit. Huh? Where are you at zero? That's true. Like, at verse one, we're down here. Yeah, right, right. Right here, you're here. You're going into the first statement. Oh, my God. You're not like, So they're starting in the down place. Yeah, that's what I want you to cry out. That is an excellent point. So we actually, it doesn't help us to exactly start. So you have yours coming out of the pit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we're saying... Yeah, so there's maybe more of a downward motion here. Right. More so... So this straight line, is this, so let me ask you this, my friends, is this straight line too clean for the emotional realities of our life? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> our life is not a straight line. Our life is this. You know what? That, amen to that. I'll tell you. Yeah. So maybe more like this, and then, whoo. Like this. Okay, let's... Okay, people. All right. Okay, math people, calm down. I only went to Bible college. All right. So this is where we like, you know, and this one's over here. Okay. Right. <laughs> Back there, going like this. We, speaking of leaning earlier, right, everybody in the room started to go like this to me. Um... Now, when you erase it, you know, don't go to your Yeah, let me. Yeah. I guess that is handy. Look at that. Look, it just comes right off. Uh, so, uh, this. <laughs> right now. Um, 
this is, this is what I think I, I love, and I think this is where I would love, like us to land, is look, when we're making these, the Psalms do this just too. They do not only represent to us in the most, they, they really truly represent the emotional reality of our life. Lament Psalms will not be held by a single straight line. Lament Psalms cannot be tracked that way. Lament Psalms can only be tracked by this crazy squiggly, you know, up, but it kind of comes up to, you know, wherever it reaches its zenith, if you will. Our lives are too chaotic for us to um, for us to be constrained to a neat black line on Microsoft Word. And I think it's really good news that God agrees. <laughs> and that God gives us lots of permission in the Lament Psalms to pray this way and to articulate our lives this way. And frankly, I'm thankful not only for the Psalms that kind of move in an upward direction, I'm really thankful for the Psalms that move in a downward direction. And in a couple of weeks, Jeff, are you teaching Psalm 88? Psalm 88, man, if you want to talk about downward motion, again, I told you this last week, it ends with the verse, darkness is my only friend. You know? Um, Thank goodness for Psalms that end with darkness is my only friend. Thank the Lord for Psalms that end with praise the Lord. Thank, you know, thank thank the Lord that he created us with hearts that can pray in all sorts of different directions. Amen? Let me close in prayer. Um, Last week I wrote... um, I read a psalm, a, a lament written by Walter Brueggemann out of his book, Prayers for a Privileged People. I'd like to do that again this week. I think he writes them better than I ever could. So uh, let me um, read this, and then we'll go. Um, this prayer is entitled, On Theodicy. I'm reading Psalm 145, 16 through 16. We gladly confess the eyes of all look, at, look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hands, satisfying the desire of every living thing. That we gladly and confidently confess. And yet, we notice your creatures not well fed, but mired in hunger, poverty, and despair. And yet, we notice the power of evil that stalks the best of us, the power of cancer, the dread of war, sadness of death, good death, or cruel death. And so we pray confidently for you, but with footnotes that qualify. We pray confidently, but we will not deny in your presence the negatives that make us wonder. We pray amid our honest reservations. Give us patience to wait, impatience to care, Sadness held honestly, surrounded by joy over your coming kingdom, and peace while we wait, and peace at the last, that we may be peacemakers, and so your children. We pray this in the name of your firstborn son, our peacemaker. Amen. Enjoy the service. Enjoy your day. Thanks for being here. Next week, we'll be a split room again, um, and we hope you are back. Um,